0: Everyone should be making their way back in here. Looks pretty good. So, once we go once more with me, this is the last time for me this month, and then move into Josh. So, um, yeah, so once again, remember uh, we're talking about and learning about and thinking about and uh, reflecting on our understanding of leadership. The mentality, as James just alluded to, the mentality of someone who strives to be, who strives to follow a godly leader. And uh, so far we've talked about attitude and specifically we talked about attitude versus habit. Uh, and last week we talked about uh, commitment and the important uh, role that that plays in our understanding and um, mentality of leadership. So This week I want to talk about another aspect of what that looks like for us. Um, of our leadership roles and our, really our leadership sort of lifestyle that you should um, come to know and what that looks like, and that is uh, that it is one that requires obedience. So we're going to talk about what obedience looks like and some of the context for that. So, yeah, leadership mentality, attitude, habit, commitment, obedience. So here we go. Allow me to start with an anecdote. I think it's an anecdote, if you will. So how many of you used to watch the show Fear Factor. Wow, that's actually more people than I would have, would have guessed. <laughs> uh, yeah, Fear Factor. I used to love that show. I think it was on like every Monday at 7 or 8 p.m. and I used to like look forward to that show airing, back when you looked forward to shows airing, rather than just like taking on 13 episodes at once. Old school television viewing, that's right. Um, yeah, I used to love that show. But the show Fear Factor, is rooted in basically the idea that everyone has a price, right? If the price is right, I'll do anything. I'll sit in a coffin of snakes or something like that. Yeah, Paul shakes his head, heck no. I'll go through... These ones were always interesting because it was less of the edibles, but I'll go through like an underwater maze with no oxygen and if I can do it, you know, X amount of money is rewarded to me. Those are always interesting, the obstacle ones. Or I'll have a truckload of, I did weird stuff, I'll have a truckload of like minced insect, grasshopper or something poured on me uh, for a certain amount of money. Or the gross ones where I'll eat some poor mammals' testicles for a certain amount of money, some poor mammal that lost their testicles to the show Fear Factor. So, yeah, gross stuff, but everyone has a price was the basic, (laughs) Pastor Monty shaking his head no. Everyone has a price is the basic premise of Fear Factor. I think they tried to bring it back to unsuccessfully, recently, but um, but anyways, so it's one thing to defect, if you will, on Uh, perhaps morally neutral things, although maybe eating certain things is not morally neutral. Um, But who cares if you're willing to drink liquefied cow brains or something like that for $1,000, right? Nobody cares. But then there's things that should never, ever, ever, ever be compromised, uh, that we should never defect on, um, and that should never have a price. And specifically, we're talking about leadership, so we're going to be talking about it in, in that context, you know? our leadership, our mentality when we're understanding our roles as leaders should never come at a price. You know, we should never be willing to defect or compromise uh, for the right price if the price is right, if you will. Um, our, our integrity and honesty and morality and virtues and values and all these things, our commitment to God, to the people he entrusts us with, to our families, they are not fair game if the price is right. Um, so as leaders, we should constantly be analyzing and asking ourselves that basic question uh, in our lives. Do I have a price? What would, I, what would it take for me to compromise? Um, so it's a nice thought, you know, a nice idea that as people, once we commit ourselves to something, um, our loyalty, loyalty to it is resolute. It's a nice thought and certainly that's what we should be, right? That's what integrity is. Once you say you're going to be something, do something, follow something, you follow through. And that's integrity, but um, and certainly it should be that way in our commitment to God in our relationship with God and um, following and modeling our lives after Christ, but unfortunately that's not always the case. Um, There's a lot of times that we see and hear things where people claim to be Christ's disciples, Christ's devout followers, but they end up defecting on their godly obedience. People who lie and cheat and steal, who live double lives, maybe, who claim to be one way but are really something else, and um, at least in their hearts, maybe, if not manifested externally. They claim one thing, but in their hearts, they, they are something else entirely. And oftentimes you, you read or you hear about like some of the more high-profile cases of these kinds of things, you know, in the news or whatever, if you're a news people. At least one of us is a news person in here, or two of us. Um, But like maybe a high-profile pastor of some big church or the leader of some, even small church, they defect on their role as a godly, righteous leader, um, and they get accused of doing something or saying something or acting in a certain way. Um, And you you read about and you hear about those unfortunate cases. but the mentality of a godly leader is, understands and actualizes a complete and total, unshakable, immovable obedience to God. Um, this is sort of why I briefly touched on it several months ago, and I alluded to it earlier in the month. Um, during one of my weeks uh, back in April, uh, I was talking about needing to understand our roles as leaders as being in submission to God's will and I just briefly went over that back then, but once a person has aligned himself with God's will, then they replace their old way of thinking uh, and live with that new perspective and that new mentality and that new purpose, which is that everything we do as leaders points back to God, points back to glorifying him, points back to, towards highlighting his kingdom. Uh, but even within scriptures, we see examples of leaders who lacked that total devotion to God. Uh, and succumbed to some level of compromise um, and put on, their display, put on display a lack of obedience to God. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 today, um, and I want to use Saul as an example of that, King Saul. Uh, so yeah, King Saul. King Saul is the leader who had everything. Saul was anointed By God through Samuel, the prophet Samuel, to be the king of Israel. Had everything a nation could want and um, still lacked the commitment that we need, the obedience that we need as um, leaders. Uh, When the pressure was on, instead of obeying God's command to um, destroy uh, a people that were against the nation of Israel, the Amalekites, um, Saul, you know, sought to take matters into his own hands and not follow, not obey direct commands from God. So, we're going to be going through this bit by bit today. So, 1 Samuel chapter 15, I heard some of you flipping there. Uh, We're going to start 1 through 9. Still hear a couple people flipping. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, I'm just going to go. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you and, as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So Saul mobilized his army at Telaim. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites: move away from where the Amalekites live or you will die with them for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So we can already see this playing out negatively for Saul, right? He had a direct command from God to destroy everything, including the livestock. Um, But Saul's price for defecting for disobedience, was capturing a defeated king to lord over and money in the bank through capturing of all the livestock, which back then, that was money in the bank, right? Livestock. That's what um, sort of showed, what, that was a major wealth indicator. Uh, and much like many people do, Saul thought he could rationalize away clear instructions that were given to him by God through Samuel. Uh, and we see this um, kind of thing play out. Many of the great people in the Bible struggle with major character flaws. Not that we shouldn't take the best of them um, and, you know, leave the worst of them um, as we adopt, you know, their, their level of character. But um, we see that character flaws play out in many people in Scripture, right? We see Moses having anger issues, for example. We see Solomon being kind of full of himself or uh, Samson... Having self control issues, or you know, the list goes on. A lot of the iconic people in history, in scripture, um, aren't perfect. Um, and so for King Saul, it was, I don't know, perhaps insecurity or something, taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting in God and obeying commands from him. He was more concerned in gaining prestige uh, in the eyes of men than in pleasing God, and it's that insecurity that causes. Saul to rationalize his rebellion. And we'll see that in just a minute. But first, we see how God responded to the actions that King Saul took. So, verse 10 and 12. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone, someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went to Gilgal. So God responds in anguish and agony at the lack of obedience that King Saul showed. Um, and he said that he regrets ever making him king because he did not obey his instructions. And um, I want to touch, touch in on that, the significance of the word obey something significant to learn from that historically and, you know, diving deeper into um, and understanding its, you know, context and specifically its historical context with understanding God's covenant with his people, uh, Israel, um, and allowing us to see, like, um, an insight into the relationship his people had with him and vice versa. But this is one of those words in Scripture obey, where our English ape, horrible language, doesn't really do it justice. Um, the word that's translated comes from the word Shema, the Hebrew word Shema, and we see it translated here in several other times in scripture, Old and New Testament, obviously New Testament would be a Greek, but the truth is that there's, there isn't really a, a, a Hebrew term for obey, as we know it. Just like there isn't really an English term for shema. I heard or read earlier this morning that in Hebrew there's like less than 10,000 words total, but in English there's like 100,000 or something. So you can see there's a significant difference um, just in terms of translating things. Um, and in case you didn't know, and for you know Bible study people on Fridays, um, this serves as a reminder, but uh, Oftentimes in other languages, and especially within the Hebrew and the Greek that we get in scripture, um, there's either like entire concepts and sometimes they're like an intricate detail um, that are expressed in just one word or a couple words. Um, Entire like ideas and concepts that don't translate well in English. And this is why we always talk about, this is why James last month was just going over with... uh, What's it called? What's it called, James? Your, uh, sure, but your blue letter Bible you were using? To, de- to dive deeper into translation and understanding what Scripture is actually saying. So when we think of obey, we often take it for granted, right? We think it's just to listen, to follow, and we sort of just leave it at that. It doesn't really have too, too much of a profound meaning. It should. Obeying is, you know, it's what we're called to do. Um, But we take it for granted, just like a lot of things, just like a lot of um, words and, you know, calls to action. But the term Shema, or the phrase Shema Levat in Hebrew means to hear with your heart. So already you can sort of take more from that than obey. But to hear with your heart. A hearing heart that is intent on or committed to doing whatever God commands. And this was the basis of the relationship God had with his people. To do as he commands, full stop. No questions asked. Do as he commands. Go, leave this place, do this, cross this. The list goes on. Do as he commands. To hear God with your heart. To know what God is saying is trustworthy. That we can lean on it. That we can stand on it. And the first time it's used is in chapter 3 of Genesis, in the beginning, uh, directly following Adam and Eve's sin and eating of the fruit from the tree. Immediately following uh, their disobedience, they heard from their heart the spirit of the Lord walking in the garden. Uh, they, to hear Shema is hearing with understanding, uh, attention, and with a response, and so they heard God with that, with their heart, with the response and when God called out, where are you in the third chapter of Genesis he wasn't asking that because he didn't know where Adam was Right? an all-knowing God, of course, knows everything but it was because he knew that Adam was not in his heart did not hear him with his heart when God commanded, do not do that So there was a separation that took place, and when he said, where are you, it was sorrowful, and it was anguish, and it was a sad parent when their child does something heartbreaking, right? And that is not easy. (laughs) Like, when you know you taught better, but your child does the opposite and does something, the worst thing they can do in this case, which is disobey and separate themselves from God. Obedience is a supreme test of faith. To hear with your heart is a supreme test of faith in God and in reverence of God and in trust in God. And it was the one important relationship, the one important, supremely important thing that God's people make sure that they do. As I said, hear with their heart, respond to God's command in action. The one thing that must not be broken. We're going to go back to Samuel. Uh, starting at verse 13 now. When Samuel finally found him, found Saul, he greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. So Saul treated, uh, you know, met Samuel cheerfully. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the, and the lowing of cattle, I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats and cattle, Saul admitted, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everything else, everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice, to hear his voice with your heart. My words. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Pretty sad. Pretty sad consequence for someone who disobeys direct commands from God. Saul continues, as you see in the beginning of that section we just read, he continues on and attempts to like layer lie after lie and distort the narrative and distort the direct command that he had from God. And he says, I'll do this so I can offer a sacrifice. You know, isn't that good? (laughs) Saul in his mind, you know, redefined what God had told him. He changed it to fit with what he actually wanted, with what his heart actually wanted, rather than his heart for what God wanted. He says, I did obey God. I did everything he told me to do. I went there. I destroyed everyone, so on and so forth. I brought back the king. Isn't that what he told me to do? And when we, when Samuel, or sorry, when Saul rationalizes, when we rationalize, we end up Believing lies that we tell ourselves. We end up going deeper down that dark rabbit hole. Um, and it was in this way that Samuel sort of missed the point entirely of why God wanted him to do that and what God wanted him to do. Um, and a lot of the times you see people doing exactly what Samuel did, hiding behind religious activities or something, playing church because we think What's up? Saul, sorry, I keep, yeah. Sorry if I keep mixing Samuel and Saul. Saul's the king, bad king, Samuel the prophet. Forgive me if I keep mixing them up. Uh, Yeah, a lot of the times we see that with people too. They want to play church. They want to hide behind, you know, actions and activities that they think are good, that they think God wants rather than what God actually wants. And so fortunately, uh, God sees through that. As Rose just shared in her praise and prayer, God sees through us and sees into our heart and sees what our actual desire and motivation is. And Samuel reminds Saul that it's obedience that God craves, to hear him with your heart more than anything else. Obedience being the aspect of our godly leadership mentality that sincerely listens and trusts in God in our heart above all else. We'll finish out this section, verse 24. Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. Then Saul pleaded again, I know I have sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him and Saul worshiped the Lord skipping down to 34. Then Samuel went home to Ramah and Saul returned to his house at Gibeah with Gibeah of Saul. <clears throat> Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him, and the Lord was sorry he ever made Saul king. When God says what he did, when it says that in scripture that he was sorry that he ever made Saul king, this is not God Admitting a mistake, right? I think we can hopefully agree that God doesn't make mistakes, but God does agonize. He agonizes over people that go astray. Specifically, he agonizes over a leader he appointed who had strayed from God's commands from trusting in God. And so this is not God admitting, uh, yeah, mistakes, but just anguish as a parent, right? As I said earlier, as a parent who sees their kid going in a direction that they had no intention of them ever going. And it was immediately, if we were to read the next chapter, it was immediately following this immediately following uh, Samuel or Saul (laughs) Saul's disobedience that God appoints a new king of Israel does anyone know who that new king was there you go David and I would suggest to you pretty confident that it's not a coincidence that David is known as what boom bingo A man after God's own heart. Unlike Saul. A man who wanted to hear God with his heart. A man after God's own heart. Not that David was perfect, and we know that. And we don't hide behind that. You know, David was murderous, an adulterer, church duties, had a lot of mistakes. But what David was, was sincerely seeking God's heart. Obedience in his own heart. And I think it's interesting, going back to Saul, um, again, you, you see him trying to rationalize his sin by blaming other people. I was scared of what the other people would do or say or want it or whatever, um, saying he was afraid of them. Using something or someone's, someone's uh, to break his own fall, putting it before him and his relationship with God. And you see the same thing in uh, other points in scripture. You see the same thing uh, with Aaron, for example, in Exodus. When Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, the Israelites being the impatient and ungrateful and forgetful people that they showed themselves to be, once again, were ready to turn from God by demanding a new God to follow, an idol to follow, uh, to replace God. And Aaron did what? Gave that to them. He succumbed to that. He succumbed to that pressure and restlessness uh, as his brother was literally receiving the instructions for what to do and how to be as people. <clears throat> Aaron builds a golden calf and has like the cojones to say, yeah, I did that and just out came this calf. It was totally weird. That's how scripture puts it, that Aaron... Dennett, no. He tried to say that it was a miracle that this happened. <laughs> when we try to rationalize our excuses, and it sounds ridiculous, it sounds ridiculous, and when we try to rationalize our excuses for our disobedience, oftentimes it sounds ridiculous. Uh, I don't know about you, certainly this applies to me, but how many of you remember when you were young, like remember trying to lie to one of your parents or teachers or whatever authority figure was in your life. And you, you were sticking to your guns in that lie. And you think back on it now, and you think, wow, I am a fool to think that would have worked. Like, I, of, you know, I often reflect on that. We talk about it often, how, how dumb we were, and you know actions we took. And I oftentimes think about that version of me and say that if I would ever run into my former self, I would just slap me for being like so dumb to think that that was cool or that that would work, you know, that really sticking to that lie would somehow produce some sort of good results for me. Like, that's what I would do if I ran into my former self. You think about just the the depth that you wanted to go into with that excuse and you say it out loud now and you're like, wow. I must have sounded pathetic and dumb to think that that was viable, believable. The dog ate my homework. I never said that. I never used that one, but that's the concept. I would assume that the same thing is true in our relationship with God, that when we rationalize our disobedience, it sounds pathetic to him, and it's heartbreaking to him, and he agonizes over it. When we aren't being the people he called us to be, You hear those people in those high profile cases like I was talking about. Well surely God wants me to be happy or I can only do this if this or you know you have to take care of yourself first so that you can take care of other people and you know you hear these rationalizations and they sound bad. They sound pathetic. A brief overview of Israel's history shows that that the fundamental problem of god's people with him was their repeated repeated failure to obey to obey god's commands god always blessed their obedience but it was their habitual disobedience which always was the cause of their constant suffering and their trials and their downfalls and their captivities and it was their habitual disobedience which got him into this place. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God, and live in a way that pleases him, and love him, and serve him with all your heart and your soul. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. The conflict between the call to obedience and the lure of disobedience, it's well illustrated in Israel's history, in the kings of Judah, of the, what was it, 40-something kings? Only a handful of them were said to have remained faithful in God's sight, and even then, a handful of them defected in the latter stages of their lives in their obedience to God. whenever that sort of um, slippage occurred, it's because they, they stopped following God. They stopped obeying. They put something else before God, decided to trust in something or someone rather than trust in God. The command to godly leadership and the mentality of that is simple. Um, I heard some of the cell groups talking about it in the last couple weeks. It's simple. Fear the Lord walk in his ways, love him, obey him, serve him. But unfortunately, as people, as sinful creatures, <coughs> we make simple pretty, pretty tough, quite difficult. And for a lot of us, this is a lifelong journey of rewiring, of changing that mentality. But Moses says, and we should take note, that when we do, that it's for our own good that we obey, that we follow God. A Christian writer puts it this way in his book. Suppose you had to cross a field that was full of landmines. A person who knew exactly where every one of them was, buried, offered to take you through it. Would you say to him, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to impose your ways on me. I hear that a lot in today's today's day and age. I don't know about you, but I would say as close to that person as I could. I certainly would not go wandering off. His directions to me would preserve my life. He would say, don't go that way, because that way will kill you. Go this way and you will live. God is that minefield expert for us, if you will. God is our guide to strong, to healthy living, to strong leadership. um, And it's God who is the perfect example of that to us and it's funny when people you know make that claim or say that phrase that they say that you know there's no instruction there's no manual to life you know you hear that cliche a lot and it's ugly there's a bad taste in your mouth usually they say that to you to sort of comfort you when you mess up when you they they say it to comfort your own shortcomings, you know, to affirm your disobedience, perhaps, um, and we need to not need to not allow that um, because, fun fact, there is an instruction book to life. It's called the Bible. Weird. It's called the Word of God. It's called believing that Christ is who He says He is, who He is, who He claim to be what he did. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. You wouldn't read, I was thinking about Jacob for some reason. Hey, Jacob's here today. Sometimes you're not here when I use you as an example. Um, But I was thinking about Jacob's love for orange juice, because he loves it. Jacob loves a a good frozen can of orange juice. None of that fresh squeeze nonsense. A good frozen can will do Jacob nicely. Um, But it would be pretty weird if Jacob was reading the instructions and said something like, add water, that's absurd. You're supposed to add Coca-Cola to get orange juice. Like, that's absurd. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that about life and accept that affirming nonsense because you mess up, because of your own shortcomings. You should recognize those and seek to align them with with who we are called to be rather than, you know, patting yourself on the back because everyone messes up and, you know, it's okay. There's no instructions to life, man. We're just sort of feeling it out as we go. Nope. Not true. The culture and... That's an example, but the culture and the world screams out to us to live our lives in opposition to God and resistance to God and resistance to the law that he puts on our heart. But Scripture tells us that obedience... When we show obedience to God, it shows our true love for him. It says that in 1 John chapter 5. And Christ himself qualified, qualified our love for him by doing just that. John 14, he says, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. As leaders, we need to be careful in our understanding and our perspective, in our organizing of things in how we live and understand ourselves to be. The right attitude, as I said a couple weeks ago, motivates right habit. The right attitude understands the depth of commitment that is required in understanding what a godly leader needs to do and needs to be. And the right attitude appreciates and actualizes and responds to hearing God with your heart. And then we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trapping like I was just saying, that false narrative. That we don't fall into a bad attitude of habitual disobedience rather than habitual obedience. Because we know how that sort of story ends and we've seen it play out when someone disobeys God and where that takes them. Another writer says, the more we know about God, I like this, the more we know about God, the more we can trust him. The more we trust him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we will obey him. And the more we obey him, the more we will learn about the trustworthiness of him. And it becomes a cycle, an upward spiral as opposed to a downward spiral of compromise and disobedience. We are either spiraling up, drawing nearer and closer to him or spiraling down, go getting further away from him. And last week I talked about commitment and toward the end of it I was talking about the fact that commitment is not a commitment if, if then, you know, that's that's, the, that's a wrong kind of commitment, it's not commitment. Uh, commitment is not commitment if there are strings attached. That's sort of how I ended last week. It becomes like bad bargaining at best. Um, but the same is true in regards to Obedience and understanding obedience to God and our perception of what comes from that. Are we obedient only if we know that there's something to be gained, like in the now? Or are we obedient only if we can see the effects of something or as long as it's not costly? It's a big one. And we have a great example of that in the Firewalkers. Not Aiden and Jeremiah and Colin, but the actual guys. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and a lot of the time, God requires us to be. When God requires us to be, be obedient, um, He gives us direct commands. Don't lie. That's an easy one, right? And we can see how "don't lie" produces positive results in our lives. Hopefully, um, you know, uh, a, a world where everyone's a liar is pretty scary, and you live in fear. You can't trust anyone. You can only trust yourself, maybe. Um, and it makes good sense to comply with it, with, with don't lie. Um, but there's other times where it won't be as obvious, where we need discipline and discernment and commitment and accountability and trust and obedience in God. And there's going to be times when, excuse me, when as leaders, uh, we find ourselves back into a corner maybe. Um, Kind of like the firewalkers did these three men when it's crunch time, it really tests our level of obedience. Do we obey and lose the i don't know the deal or something do we obey and uh, and lose the promotion because we weren't willing to you know compromise or defect on uh, a, a virtue that we had morality that we had do we obey and risk losing relationship and do we obey and risk being alone and that's a valid fear you know that's a valid fear that we all have to face obey or risk being alone because you are the only one that is willing to be obedient to god to follow god to trust in god to not hear the culture the world screaming at you but to hear the wisdom of god and the word of God. And for those guys, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I can never remember their actual names, Hananiah, Colin? Yep. Yeah, there you go, good job. Uh, but for those guys, it was obey God and lose your life. That's about as high stakes as it gets. Obey God and lose your life. And that's the length that they're willing to go the depths that they were willing to go in their obedience. Uh, But obedience on that level, granted it's an extreme example, but that's kind of the point. Uh, Obedience on that level requires a resolute conviction, as I talked about earlier. That level of obedience is never based on what's at stake, with strings attached, Uh, what's to be gained or lost, but only on what is real. And so for those guys, it was easy, well, Maybe it wasn't easy. It's was probably tough. You know, the furnace, the fire was real. The choice they had to make was real. The consequences were very, very real. But God is real. And God is bigger than all of those other things. And so they went all in on that. That's where all their chips were, in God, regardless of anything. Obedience to him. Not defecting on who they were supposed to be, what they were supposed to be doing. And then, of course, we have the supreme example um, in Christ. We have the example of him and his level of obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane and the ultimate statement of obedience. The Son of God and what he was willing to do. What Jesus wanted at that moment wasn't what God wanted. wasn't what the Father wanted. And he knew that to be obedient, to obey God, would be, would have the highest consequences, right? He knew that to obey him would be an undeserved, unfair, unjust, unimaginable, emotional pain and experience and an agonizing physical death, which is exactly what he got. He was fully aware of that. And yet, what did he do? He still professed obedience and submission to God's will rather than what he wanted and that is profound because he is God it was in the garden as I alluded to earlier it was in the garden that Adam birthed a very long history of disobedience and it was in the garden where Christ made it right and that is probably not coincidence and that gives me goosebumps I don't know about you Jesus fulfilled his purpose through obedience. Willingness. A willing response to hearing God's heart and what God wanted. The ultimate test for any leader is that same level of obedience and willingness to the same father that Jesus committed himself to. And we should think about that as we analyze ourselves. And I want to end by saying that again uh, God gave us all that we need as leaders and we've been talking about that all year long. He gave us all we need. The calling and the equipping and everything we need. He gave us the rule book for it. He gave us his word. He gave us his son. He gave us his spirit that motivates us and writes these things on our hearts. And Christ fulfilled that purpose through his obedience. And what we get out of our lives, out of being good disciples and good followers of God is whether we choose to be obedient. He doesn't want us to redefine and to to redefine obedience and to rationalize disobedience because as we saw in Samuel chapter 15, that kind of thing agonizes him. That kind of thing hurts his heart when his people go the opposite way of what he says and where he tells us to go. So I want us to think about those things as we ponder our roles, as we ponder our perceptions of what a good leader is, of what a good leader thinks about, of how a good leader acts, of how a good leader understands themselves, and who a good leader follows. So I have five questions, which I'll post on the ABFS thread, because Josh can only do so much typing. The first question. Do you have a price? Are you a fear factor player? Do you have a price? What would it take for you to compromise, to disobey, to defect? There's a really terrible movie by Martin Scorsese about that, about defecting and rationalizing your defecting. It's called silence. I don't recommend it, but if you so wish, watch it. To what degree, next question, To what degree are the choices I make based on right thinking, which is, you know, a godly mentality, wrong thinking, worldly standards, or emotions, subjective subjectivity? Third, what excuses do you give to yourself and to God to explain your own shortcomings, your own disobedience? How do you rationalize your disobedience when God is telling you to move in a certain direction, to do a certain thing, to be a certain way? And lastly, who or what are you ultimately obedient to? And do you have the appropriate hierarchy in your life? These questions, I'll be honest, they suck to have to ask ourselves because no one likes pinpointing really bad things about ourselves but that is the only way that we grow, is by pinpointing that and then seeking to rectify it, to cut out the bad parts of our lives and leave the good. And when those bad parts start creeping in, to cut them out again. So, and you get that through um, constant evaluation, you get that through accountability in the body, you get that through following God's word. So I want you guys to be thinking about that. I imagine your conversations will start slow because of the nature of what we're talking about, and because of the vulnerability required. But I would encourage you to be vulnerable and to analyze your lives and your obedience to God. So, please go discuss those things. I'll post the questions on ABFS. 20 minutes. We know what 20 minutes means here. But please try to make it 20 minutes. Shema. The